This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Turning frustrations into frustrations. The Dead Zoo Gang. TikTok Ticks. And Lord Byron's Horror Novel. Ken, do you know anything about kitties? I might. But do you know about magical kitties? I know everything. Everything about Magical Kitties Save the Day, a new RPG for gamers of all ages. But, you know, young ones in particular. A perfect intro to the hobby. You mean perfect? I do not. Like the title says, you're Magical Kitties. Every Magical Kitty has a human. Every human has a problem. In Magical Kitties Save the Day, you use your magical powers to solve problems and... Save the day! You all live in a hometown that's filled with foes like witches, aliens, and hyper-intelligent raccoons. They make human problems worse, so the kitties go on adventures to stop them and help the humans. The super simple but elegant rule system puts the emphasis on storytelling and puts the dice in the players' hands, not the GM's. And it supports a setting and characters that players are familiar with and love from the start. When you open the box for Magical Kitties Save the Day, sitting right on top is a copy of Magical Kitties and the Big Adventure. A play graphic novel adventure. Within moments of opening it, kiddos can create their magical kitty and go on an amazing adventure that also teaches them how to play the game. Run Magical Kitty Save the Day for kids as young as six years old. And for everyone else who loves kitties. A great game for kids to start running on their own with plenty of tools and guidance for first-time GM. If you've been looking for a way to introduce your friends and family to role-playing games, Magical Kitty Save the Day is the perfect game to do it. Do you mean perfect? I also do not. Pick up your copy at atlas-games.com. You are cute. You are cunning. You are fierce. You are magical kitties, and it's time to save the day. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And uh, here in the gaming hut, We've got our little model railroad laid out, and oh, I, we didn't even get to the trolley car problem, Robin. Someone just took the trolley car and rolled it down a siding, and they're, they're, I think they're looting a town with it. <laughs> I'm not even sure what's going on. Players, Robin, if it weren't for the players, our little plots would tick over so beautifully. But they would remain dead and inert on the scenario page as well. Well, that's true, but, but you know, they, would, perfect all the they would live in our hearts. But yeah. the place they're supposed to live, as you point out, is at the table. And so, what we need to do as GMs, and I believe you and I are as one on this, is to go from a, how do I stop the players from ruining the plot by doing X? Where X is something they obviously really want to do, especially if you tell them they can't. Right. Into, how can I make their doing X a linchpin of the plot? And that is... I think where we are, it's a, it's a question that I think we all think of as GMs, or at least once we uh, stopped trying to force a series of multi-dimensional pegs into two-dimensional holes. And so what do you got, Robin? What's your go-to? Right. And I think particularly this actually pertains not only to GMing in the moment, but even more so to scenario writing. Yeah. And often a GM who knows in the moment 
to roll with whatever the players want to do in order to keep the scenario nice and neat and orderly and within a confined word count will find themselves making on paper a rookie mistake that they wouldn't make at the gaming table and therefore encouraging other poor, unfortunate readers of their scenario to make that rookie mistake. Mm. And in fact, this segment comes up because uh, the other week while I was working on a scenario, I was caught myself doing that exact same thing of going, well, if they go to this place and do this too early for the thing to happen, here's all these reasons why they're just blocked. And then, fortunately, I, I regained consciousness, came to my senses and went, no, wait, if they really want to do this, it's up to me to make sure that something interesting happens. And that interesting thing is not a block because, right. as I've already joked about, as soon as you try to block them from doing something, what do they want to do, Ken? They, they want that thing. They become fixated on it. It becomes the whole point of the scenario. Right. And that, whether that's stubbornness or thinking that, indeed, that is the whole point of the scenario, right. they do it all the harder. Right. If, if we weren't being opposed, it wouldn't be important. <laughs> exactly. And you, you mentioned making it the linchpin of the plot. I don't think you have to then take that thing that they might want to do. I, I guess I guess the first question is, how hard are they going to want to do something? Yeah. And this is where, at the table... With your group, you will know pretty reliably what's going to happen, I think, if you've been paying attention. Every now and again, you get something out of left field. But for the most part, you're going to know that Deborah is going to do the cool, dramatic thing. You know that Steve is going to try and weasel out of the situation and lawyer it to death. And you know that at some point, Tom is just going to give up and start hitting anything with the axe. And it's ideal if he's in the scenario by the time that happens. And you can make those plans for your players and your player characters and go ahead and, I think, hang stuff on. And then if for once in his lifetime, Tom uh, controls himself, then that adds, you know, interest and tension. And, of course, teaches you not to make anything the linchpin of your plot, which is, I guess, a different question. But, yeah, I think when you're writing a scenario, you just have to sort of think, what are the standard responses that you'll get to this? And how do we make them feed into what we eventually want the scenario to do? Right. Now, I think it's perfectly on point to if there's a branch which you know is not going to be as rewarding as the main branch that you have in mind. And, of course, the reason as GM you're trying to sort of block, you, you have that impulse to block what the players want to do. It's because, you know, that's not where the fun is. Right. You're trying to move them back to the fun. And the irony is, of course, that the as we said, that the mere act of blocking them makes whatever it is that they're trying to do that isn't fun seem more fun. And so I think it's entirely on point to give them reasons not to do that, to impose costs for doing X. Mm -hmm. And also, however, uh, so you can sort of guide their decision making that way. And so they, if they know going in that, well, we could, you know, raid the place in the morning when we think we have the advantage of surprise, but that, that also means that we're we're tired and we won't have our guns, uh, all of our guns with us. And so that becomes a shifting the, the ground from stopping you from doing this to going, well, you can do this, but here's the disadvantages and here's the advantages. On the other hand, though, I would also say, try to find a benefit to doing the thing that they want to do and a different direction for the, the plot to go in. And, and this is expanding out uh, into the, you know, multiple linchpins thing of that way, suddenly you've got two valid branches two ways that the situation can go and their advantages and disadvantages to that decision rather than just, I can't think of what it is that you 
want to do, so you can't do it. Yeah. When you're doing a scenario of any kind, and I think especially a gumshoe scenario where there is a motor that moves you through the scenario as players, and that motor is finding the clues, that it is incumbent on you to think about multiple tracks rather than one track. And it then is incumbent upon you to make all of those tracks both point to whatever the ultimate climax is supposed to be, but also to be interesting and fun and rewarding in their own way. Even if the reward is you're so smart, you avoided all the traps and got right to the end, then the reward should be, you know, <laughs> look at you with your hit points intact, you fancy right. lad. And that's another interesting question, perhaps for an entirely different segment of if the player successfully just avoid all of their problems, how do they know that they did it? Yeah. <laughs> how, do they know that they, how do they know to feel smart? And did they actually want to avoid all the problems is uh, yet another one. Because So in a game, for example, where the core activity is a fight, you don't want them to fully avoid all of the fights that then you suddenly didn't have your thing that night. Right. Even yeah. that sort of thing, you can sort of recast to, uh, well, they don't completely avoid it, but they come in with an advantage and mm-hmm. they know they have an advantage and they might well feel more of a sense of accomplishment for having 80% of their hit points left and knowing that they were they were smart and good than having 100% of the hit points left and not even knowing what the other side of that equation would have been. Yeah, moving back to the knowing that the players will do X side of the question, what sorts of things can, I mean, if we can talk generically, can scenario designers assume players will do? I mean, we can assume that they will start fights. We can assume that they will refuse help. I think. Uh, What other kinds of potential blockers can we diagnose ahead of time? Well, actually, the one I often find myself trying to get around is the desire to go and get help and have the cops do it or have the (laughs) Ah, the guard do it. I think the number one thing is just, I want to go to this place now instead of, you know, waiting enough time for the timeline to work. Or, you know, if if there's an area or scene that they want to engage with, but you need other stuff to happen in the storyline before it's at its maximal fun point. Mm-hmm. You have to build in other stuff that's fun if they arrive early. So it's sort of a timing yeah. thing. Timelines and managing time in game is a whole, you know, we are full of topics that aren't this topic on this topic, Robin, but it, it's very difficult both at the table. And I think as a designer to think, okay, this is a scenario that takes place over three days and have the players follow that rhythm. And that may be the biggest thing is that you just have to make sure that there are absolutely fade to 12 hours later moments in the scenario, regardless of what the players do, that then somehow work at the table and make the players not feel like they've been chivied. Right. Uh, if that's the word that I'm looking for. Right. Or if they do something unexpectedly quickly that there's, you know, that according to your timeline, the possessed butler can't even be there yet because he's still on the train. Well, in that case, you run into the maid and she you have an interesting interaction with her and she drops a bit of information that otherwise she would have given you in this other place over here. Mm-hmm. And we're also getting into red herrings, which is because that's the classic you know, answer to a red herring is that it's not the thing they expected, but it still moves them back toward what they expected. Another thing players often want to do is sort of the opposite thing of not doing anything and, you know, hunkering down. Yeah. Is another a classic thing that they will do. And so you need to always have a reason to pull them out of any static situation or have another thing to uh, throw at them. Uh, that's a much easier uh, situation. They will probably go to a lot of effort. So if they're, if they're hunkerer downers mm-hmm. to 
make sure that they can't be interrupted in any way or can, can completely, uh, you know, inaccessible. And that's why monsters burrow out of the grounds. That's, that's an easy one. Yeah. Floating antagonists in your pocket is, is the generalized treatment for that. Have the guy come through the door with a gun. That's right. Exactly. Keep saying on this podcast, he's our hero uh, for so many reasons, but that's one of them. Yeah, the other ways that you might lure them into the story after they've moved on is have a roving, the opposite of an antagonist, a, a help, a solver, a friendly NPC, someone who brings joy whenever they show up and also clues and information. And, you know, if you know that they need to talk to the priest to find out about the possessed butler, then keep the priest in your hip pocket. And then once they've wandered off somewhere else, that's when the priest shows up. He, he could be anywhere. He could be out saying mass at the home of a, of a dying parishioner. He could be on his way, you know, down to the church to say, you know, evening mass, whatever it is. The priest is the guy who can show up anytime, have not just two guys to show up at the door with a gun, but someone to show up at the door with information and help and succor. And then that, I think, does a lot to prevent the world from seeming like a pinball game where you're just being banged at by uh, paddles all the time into a little more of a, oh, look, there's positive and negative reinforcement are possible. What a what a life we live. What a sensorium we have. And another classic problem, of course, is the interacting with the character that eventually they will want to fight, right? There's always mm -hmm. one player who's like, well, why don't we just hit him with the axe now? And so in that case, you have to just be, I think, very clear about what the cost of that is, which is yeah. that's because you don't find where the nuke is, man. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the mission is not to hit him with an ax. Right. It's to find where the nuke is. And so you have to interact with them in this case. Well, okay. But he leaves the casino. Once we get the, nu it's like, yeah, but then, yeah, so you have to really work out very, very much in that one for your most aggressive player. You know, why interact with anyone who might be an antagonist instead of uh, hit them with a an ax. And there are certain, Ways that you can, uh, if you just try to block that and say, well, he's got 17 invincible bodyguards and there's, you know, a laser fence and that's just a, a red flag to the ball. That's just mm -hmm. something that they will think of as the challenge they need to overcome. Whereas the incentive not to attack them now, I think, is better, which is like, you know, you you know that uh, that your axe will be sharper you know, later on down the line or, or, you know, or you need to get a bit of information and that's more important than, than killing this guy at this point. Or maybe you, you don't know ahead of time. It's even better to not signal, oh yeah, obviously this is the main bad guy, you know, put him in some sort of situation where he seems like he's not the bad guy. Yeah. Where he, again, we're back in the situation where you need to solve things and get information first. Uh, yeah, that, that's, I think, fundamental design is don't show them the big bad in scene one and say, this is the big bad, because then you are going to get the fight that happens through the whole scenario. Instead, you know, show them a bunch of potential bads and let them figure it out. And then they'll know that they need, oh, I know I want to hit someone with my axe, but I've got to figure out whom, yeah. and that becomes the job and the joy. The, the job is not to shoot Goldfinger the second you see him, but to infiltrate his complex and pretend to be friends with him. And, and find out what the what the scam is, what's he's, what's he's got going on. And some of that in a mission-centric campaign, you can sort of head off early. You, you know, your M or the voice on the tape can say, your mission is to, you know, recover the microdots. It is not just to smack this guy around. And often players will accept those beginning constraints. But I think if it's a 
sandboxier type scenario where they've just wandered in and they see, well, that guy's obviously played by a, a, a 70s uh, character actor. Let's go smack him around. You have to work a little harder at that, I think. Right. But if it's sandboxy, that's easier because you're not trying to sustain a complicated plot. And, uh, you know, Christopher Lee can easily have a twin brother with gray at the temples. Exactly. And once we're going gray at the temples, it's time for us to uh, head on over to another hot or segment. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or Bibliomancy. Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings. It's time once more to unfurl that most criminal of blotters, the crime blotter. Often we cover kind of grotesque and awful crimes, and this one is, uh, I, I think, somewhat more colorful, and uh, someone gets tear-gassed, mm -hmm. but uh, spoiler, all the, the rhinos are already dead in this case, because we're mm -hmm. going to talk about the dead zoo gang, and uh, when I started to look at the research for this, I had that terrible feeling, like, wait a minute, haven't we done this one before and in fact we have kind of tangentially covered this story from the opposite angle and we'll get to that as we go but ken tell us about rhino horns and why their powder which is basically keratin so it's like you know ground up fingernails is worth 150 percent of what uh, cocaine is worth yeah a rhino horn powder is worth sixty-five thousand dollars a kilo in the chinese market and this is because in chinese traditional medicine it is a cure-all. It, it cools your blood, solves your demon possessions, fixes your liver, gets everything running correctly. But, but isn't an aphrodisiac, which is the yeah. thing you always see, but that's a, a Western canard. Instead, this is like patent medicine. Or a misapplication of Freud, or as I like to call it, an application of Freud. Yeah, Rhin rhino horn was also, you know, let's not put this all in the Chinese. It was also a medieval traditional medicine. 
for the exact same purposes. It was mostly a specific against poison because it was related to unicorn horn and yeah. somewhat easier to source. Because a rhino is just a unicorn with a better armor class. Yeah, you would make goblets out of the rhino horn and drink out of it in the same way that you drink out of a unicorn horn and that kills your poison. Drinking out of rhino horn gives you long life and strength. And mostly in the West, we stopped drinking and powdering rhino horns in the, let's say, 17th, 18th century, although I'm sure that weird degenerates were still doing it. But it mostly went away. In China, however, it continued to be a thing. It was not a super big problem until China started having money to import rhinos from overseas. Right, because they ran out of their own rhinos yeah. in like the 17th century. Yeah. And so they began to uh, import rhino horn. And then the Chinese government cracked down and said, stop doing that. And that stabilized the rhino population for a bit. But then Vietnam embraced capitalism and with embracing capitalism, it embraced displays of your wealth pointlessly. Yes, gross status symbol. Exactly. And some Vietnamese bureaucrats, so the story goes, had some awful disease, drank a, a beverage with rhino horn dissolved in it and got all better. And that, I think, is the origin story that gross Vietnamese millionaires tell each other to explain why they are drinking rhino horn. Right. But now it's more important to ingest rhino than to have a good reason to do so. So yeah. there's like a rite that you perform to your dead relatives where you uh, use powdered rhino horn. And it's like a hangover cure, which is like the, you know, oh, I'm using this for ibuprofen. It's mm -hmm. $65,000 a kilo and it's helping to uh, eliminate this uh, very endangered large mammal because of course yeah. large mammals that aren't us or cows are mostly endangered yeah and so the really awful part of this of course is the poaching of live animals but we have some innovative criminals here who decided wait a minute there's a bunch of dead rhinos all over the place all over the world let's yeah. find their horns and sell them into the growing Vietnamese market. And, and then the Vietnamese market, again, not to let China off the hook, the Vietnamese market then created a copycat Chinese gross millionaire market. So it's it's back right. to things in, in China. Gross millionaireism is contagious. Right. And it's certainly across the uh, Sino-Vietnamese border. And, and so the, uh, as you say, the poaching is the particularly awful part. And indeed, there was an awful lot of Vietnamese guys going on rhino hunts in Africa, which are, were legal. And then they started seeing that the guys were just, you know, sawing the rhino horns off and walking away and often would hire other people to carry the guns. And it's like, you're just buying a rhino in a very bizarre way. That's disgusting. And so, as you say, people turn Although, to the... From the rhino's point of view, I think they're no happier to be killed for any other reason. No, they're, they're no happier to be poached for uh, or, or hunted for regular reasons. But still, there's there's something extra about it. I, I think everyone in the hunting industry and the big game industry even agrees. But our larger point is that besides the hunting, there's all the pre-hunted rhinos that were hunted by uh, Teddy Roosevelt and uh, various British me lords and colonial tourists and travelers and masters and uh, occupiers all across Europe. And so people began buying rhino horns in art auctions as antiques. And eventually, by 2009, people in at least British auction houses noticed uh, the prices were not tracking the age of the rhino or the fame of the collector. They were tracking the weight of the horn. And so, yes, you were paying 51,000 pounds for a big rhino horn and 35,000 pounds for a smaller rhino horn. And it didn't matter that they had superior associations on the littler rhino horn. So that 
began everyone sort of looking around and seeing what's going on and various British police forces. And I don't want to say that they engage in profiling, but they were very curious as to why Irish people were at these rhino auctions and the, the Irish began to, I mean, they, they, they bid, sometimes they won, but mostly they'd lose out to big Chinese and Vietnamese money. And so then, well, as we know from our friend Gar, the Irish are good at research. Yes. Uh, the, the, yes. And this is uh, where a community of Irish entrepreneurs comes in known as the travelers. And these were the folks who did not want to be settled down onto the British plantation system. And so they would wander around and do like a uh, knife repair and, and fix your pots and pans and do day labor. And, and then they'd move on and they hated British didn't like that kind of moving around and nor did the Irish welfare state once it got going. And so they tried to, you know, settle them all down on estates that worked about as well as you'd expect. And some of them kept those entrepreneurial instincts going and developed a scheme in which they would travel around first Ireland, then Britain, then continental Europe and offer to uh, tarmac your driveway and uh, put down there. Oh, we just, we're, you know, uh, paving the road out. We got some leftover asphalt. We'll just surface your driveway for a couple of thousand euro. No one will know. Right. And the same phenomenon exists in North America as well. Yeah, it does. And, as, and some of it is brought over by ethnic travelers doing the tarmacking scheme in North America. And some of it is Americans saying, well, that looks like a great scam. Let's do that. Yeah. And some of them have, have, have adopted the lifestyle without being related. Right. So the, uh, yeah, because uh, traveling is, although there are old traveler families in Ireland, you can absolutely marry into it. It's not as insular as Roma families in Europe are necessarily. It's very much, well, if this is how you want to live and you, you've impressed a, a traveler at the marriageable age, go for it. So the larger point being that these guys began finding rhino horns. The first time they show up on the radar is when they are packing eight rhino horns out of Portugal in 2009. And one assumes the rhino horns were taken away from them and they said, don't do that. But all over Europe and even in the United States, beginning in 2010, people would get emails from supposed antiques dealers saying, I understand you have a rhino horn. I'd love to look at it and, and give you a fair price for it. I'd like to weigh your rhino horn, please. Yes. And when, when people said, sure, the guy would show up in the middle of the night and steal your rhino horn because you're an idiot. And you just said, yeah, I have a rhino horn. And uh, that Poor rhino horn security, it's, it's a big problem. It, it did become a big problem. Various uh, U.S. hunters and hunter collectors were getting stung. Various rich people in Europe in rural chateaus. And it turns out that while you're tarmacking the guy's driveway, you're talking up the homeowner or the wife that's there or the kid. And you say, Hey, tell me about your chateau. It must be fun to live here. What with all the rhino horns you have. And, and presumably other valuables as well. Other just, valuables. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're just casing the whole thing because one of the, the qualities of the travelers is everyone's part of every scheme. So you gather, gather as much information and do as much as you can so that, you know, whoever the boss of your little network is, they think, oh, we're doing rhino horns. They can go through and sift out what all the tarmacers brought back from Spain or France or Germany and say, okay, we're doing rhino horns. Here's where we know there are rhino horns go to. Right. So speaking of which, this is why we've discussed this group before in episode 310, when we talked about the Chinese government and Chinese corporations, as if there's a big distinction there, effort to reclaim Chinese antiquities from the West, 
this group, the uh, Rathkill Rovers, was one of the groups knocking over museums to to unloot, I suppose, Chinese artifacts. Well, they were looting. Whether or not the Chinese were deluting, I suppose, is a matter of opinion. But certainly something was looted. And indeed, having lifted rhino horns from Coimbra University in Portugal and uh, various zoos and natural history museums, a uh, big zoo in Munster, the All Weather Zoo, which is a fun name. They also, as you say, got into knocking over the Fitzwilliam Museum and stealing the exhibit of Chinese art. Fitzwilliam Museum, of course, is at the uh, at Cambridge University, and that sadly is when the British government started to take this stuff really seriously because a couple of moth-eaten rhino horns in a smash and grab. Yeah, it, it's it's embarrassing, but it doesn't really you know move the radar. Plus they're like, well, by the time we find out what happened, the rhino yeah. horn has been ground up and eaten by a doughy billionaire somewhere. Yes. But, but if people just start willy nilly, you know, repatriating things on their own from English museums, you never know the bread. Yeah. 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 Eventually the Greeks are going to get um, some Irish in their payroll and then the British museum is going to have egg on its face. So anyway, that's what really sets things in motion. And one assumes that uh, the Irish criminal assets bureau got a, a friendly grant maybe from MI5 or from uh, London Metropolitan Police. But suddenly there was lots more budget to look into Irish rhino thieves because cell phone data, because part of gathering all that information is to pass it on on your cell phone. And also a fortuitous uh, surveillance camera shot identified one of the Fitzwilliam robbers as one of the guys who was wanted in one of those rhino thefts. And so there was a, a number of, of, uh, of heists. There was as many as a hundred rhino horns had been stolen, uh, by the time that they hit a storage facility in swords. Uh, that's a fun town. <laughs> They're like, ah, oh, now we don't have a name for our soccer team yeah. <laughs> uh, near Dublin known as the dead zoo, which is where they store all the stuff for their natural history museums that they don't display. It's, it's sort of their back, you know, storage area and, they were worried because everyone was stealing rhino horns. So they said, let's bring in all the rhino horns. Let's put them all in one place. Let's put them in the storage uh, facility at Swords. And then, of course, this is, you know, just like you might predict, the Rathkeel rovers hit the dead zoo and steal a bunch of uh, rhino horns from the storage facility. And uh, that's uh, the last big one, because then in September 2013, the... Criminal Assets Bureau and uh, the Cambridge Constabulary and a bunch of other people do simultaneous raids on the home of one of the Richard O'Briens. Uh, one of the other fun things about the Travelers is they all have the same names because they're all same family and they like to keep it deniable. Well, which Richard O'Brien was it? I don't know. And so good fellas for everybody's name, Polly. Exactly. So so they named uh, so they nailed uh, this guy, Richard O'Brien, for the Fitzwilliam theft. Obviously, he fought it. He said, I had nothing to do with it. You're, you're confusing. It's someone else's kid that was out there stealing rhinos in America. Right. It's prejudice against the travelers. It's prejudice against the, against the travelers. I can't believe that we let a reality show depict us as ridiculous, cartoonish chav thieves. With extreme un- inexplicable wealth. Right. It's, it's, it's just people mad at us. We won't stand for it, but. We're going to have to stand for it because what do you do when the when the man has got his boot on your neck? So that's basically where we are. The Rathkeel Rovers are no doubt still up to some kind of tricks, but the Rhino Bonanza, I think it's mostly like stolen out, right? They've probably got all the low-hanging Rhino horn, one assumes, 
and the rest is now being more carefully watched. And, uh, if, if something happens again, it just brings more heat on Rathkeel, and that's the, the opposite of what they want. Right. And so plot-wise, I think that having the characters, their whole objective is to stop Rhino Horn theft is, I think most players will find that uninspiring. Yeah, cer- certainly the third time it will seem a little samey. Right. Um, <laughs> or, or even once. Like, it's right, like, yeah. oh, I want to prevent a rich Vietnamese guy from uh, having a super expensive hangover cure made from a long dead rhino who, uh, you know, has got other worries now. But mm-hmm. I think it makes a great bit of flavor for something else, just like that moment where, you know, the, the artifact thefts turn out to be done by the same people who are stealing the rhinos and then the mm-hmm. rhino horn investigation is the way into the yep. the real or actual crime. And this also just points out that there are plenty of small museums, particularly university ones that are, they don't have the money for proper security. And uh, so you, the player characters, when you're heisting something else uh, that you uh, need to stop the bad guys from getting, uh, you know, you have some chance of uh, knocking over, you know, the, the the Coimbra University rather than, you know, getting into the British Museum. And that's a whole high scenario. But, uh, you know, little, uh, you know, university museum, that's that's just a scene in a bigger scenario. And, of course, you could be pretending to steal rhino horns or, or stealing rhino horns to fund some other theft. So, for example, the Coimbra University, they passed up a... Centaur Automaton, which surely is much more of a MacGuffin for a role-playing adventure than uh, than any rhino horn would be. Yeah, or you could uh, even do a variant on it in which you, the player characters, need a unicorn horn for some kind of world-saving magic. You're not going to go out and poach a unicorn. They're gone. But you know that there's a ton of unicorn horns all over Europe. Most of them are narwhal horns, but one of them is the the real deal. And so you have to sort of, you know, go to an old rhino thief in Rathkeel and say, look, we need data on narwhal horn and get the information from him. But of course, then he goes to his O'Brien and says, narwhal horns are the new rhino horns. Let's go. And suddenly you're dealing with a bunch of colorful, but probably a little bit dangerous uh, criminals who are after the thing that you've accidentally started the uh, occult black market in and, all in order that you can get the uh, the unicorn horn and stop the 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 Lord of Poisons or Beelzebub or or whoever is the the bad guy that's uh, coming after all that is good and decent, including small European museums. Right. Well, before we uh, start a rash of narwhal horn thefts, I think it's time for us to exit this segment and see what waits for us on the other side of this fine commercial message. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled 
F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive-thru. Keep this podcast alive and on top of what the kids today are up to by pitching in with such youthful Patreon backers as Alexander Zimmerman, Jeff Cars, Jean-Francois Parody, Carl Schmidt, and Louis Sylvester. The clatter of the teletype, the Chiron on the screen, the voices over the tannoy. They tell us that once more, this segment has been ripped from the headlines. And beloved Patreon backer Craig Maloney has gone to the trouble of ripping out a headline for us, pointing out that there seems to be an epidemic of vocal and other tics expressing themselves in Generation Z folks after being online, so much that it's been nicknamed TikTok. Right, which is T-I-C T-O-K. T-O-K. There you go. Wondering if there could be an otherworldly explanation for this, like, say, esoterrorists or a certain pallid masked king distributing his message over video media to the kids these days. And indeed, uh, there is this epidemic. It's even in medical literature. That's how epidemic it is. What they call functional tick-like behaviors. The FTLBs studies in many, many cities across the English-speaking world, Calgary, Cincinnati, Sydney, and London. They they went and they, they got uh, data from there. Uh, they show that the proportion of FTLBs amongst new cases of ticks and twitches rose from 1% to 5% to 20 to 35%, basically over the pandemic from 2019 to 2021, and that the normal person brought in with ticks and uh, what looks like incipient Tourette syndrome in many cases is like a five-year-old boy. And these, of course, are adolescent to 20-ish young women and girls. And so that is where people say, could this be because people are catching it contagiously from watching other young girls behave? And indeed, there is on TikTok a community called TikTok, as Craig points out. One of the sort of leading lights of that community, uh, someone named This Trippy Hippie, has 13.5 million followers, just her. She's sort of the typhoid Mary of ticks. She says she's been diagnosed with Tourette's. Actual Tourette's sufferers that I know are skeptical of this, but... I don't know anything about the data and I'm not going to look at TikTok ticks to find out. So let's just say that 13.5 million followers are seeing weird ticks. And uh, one of them is uncontrollably saying the word beans. That became a giant deal. And uh, the medical literature helpfully points out that there have been outbreaks of ticks amongst adolescent girls before. For example, in Leroy, New York in 2011, the, the school year of 2011 to 2012, Leroy, New York happens to be right spang in the middle of the burned over district. If you're thinking this sounds an awful lot like spiritualism starting and indeed it does. It also maybe sounds a little bit like the Salem witch panic. So who can say, but historically 
especially young girls, do tend to be higher at risk, vastly more at risk, for sort of psychogenic contagious illness in which you see something, you wind up responding to it, and it then becomes uncontrollable. And it's not that these girls are all faking it. It is that the human mind is very badly designed and will quite often uh, respond to stimuli as though you were still, you know, in a cave on the savannah somewhere instead of in your loft in Houston. Right. And girls in our uh, society are encouraged to model each other's behavior in a different way than uh, boys are. And that sort of self-monitoring can change into reflection and uh, I think unconsciously can help spread these sort of sociogenic phenomenon uh, or, or in case illnesses, in some cases, I guess, if you want to call them that. And in the uh, medical literature, they point out that the pandemic and the lockdown were both gigantic stressors. And guess what? Uh, if you're already at risk for some sort of uh, a bad outcome psychologically, going through two years of gigantic stressors, that that'll trigger that. Right. And so and where your only interaction is parasocial relationships on the internet, Zoom yeah. meetings or so forth. And so the things that register uh, on your phone screen are different than all the social cues. So that would tend to sort of push things toward the vocal and to uh, facial movements and so forth. And so that all uh, makes a, a, a lot of sense before you start giving this a sort of horror genre spin or putting it in your games. Uh, you got to know your audience and know mm -hmm. whether the uh, players are uh, willing to explore this long-running uh, theme of, uh, of horror in this context. And so be careful there. Uh, someone who is, uh, you know, a, a Tourette sufferer might uh, want to explore that, or they may want you to keep it the heck out of your mouth at the game table. So know what you're doing before you go into that. And as Craig suggests, this is very much part of the theme uh, of the Esoterrorists and then also of the Yellow King. Uh, one of the things that I find most interesting is the, you know, the way that memes and ideas and especially sinister ones uh, spread that's inherent to both uh, settings. So it could very easily be, you know, some sort of side effect of uh, spreading some other kind of message. And you can easily imagine, you know, if the camera were just to pan over a little bit between uh, one of these influences, maybe there's a yellow sign on the wall, or, or maybe they're part of an esoteric cell trying to recruit people who are especially susceptible. But what I want to focus in on is the word beans. The yeah. repetition of that word in particular, of course, clearly, I, th I think all the listeners are ahead of us here in knowing that this is about favomancy, which, yeah. is, of course, is the practice of divination using, you got it, beans. This is practiced by the uh, ubics of the Caucasus. Soothsayers there, all fortune tellers, whether they use this beans or not, are called bean throwers. So that's, uh, you know, obvious point I'm making here. Or also by... Uh, Muslim fortune tellers in uh, Bosnia Herzegovina. And so the method that is used to divine the future, uh, when you look at it, it looks kind of uh, sort of in the same category as the I Ching. Uh, so you you take 41 white beans and you move them around in a particular pattern, a particular way, and, and the ways in which the patterns wind up resolving then correspond to a series of, of oracles. So that rather than necessarily being a sign of something sinister, then in fact, this is a warning uh, from beyond that the favomancers of, uh, of the Caucasus or Bosnia are being meant to pay attention to, that something is coming and that uh, that something is bad. Now, that, that could be the Yellow King, could be uh, the Outer Dark, but in both of those settings, there is no good magic. It's all bad. So mm -hmm. yeah. I would imagine that it's probably uh, 
and even in uh, sort of the Cthulhu mythos, again, there's not very much, if any, good magic in that uh, mythos. So I think we're going to have to find a a more uh, forgiving horror universe uh, where this can be a positive message uh, to look out for what's coming. Or it can be a sort of just a, a neutral message that it's, you know, when, it's like when Cthulhu rises, people have all kinds of dreams and nightmares and stuff happens. This is just one of those waves, right? The, this is why the Ubik have been throwing beans is because they know that the beans are in communion with the afterlife and the shadow world. Uh, I point out that in Lemuria, the uh, not the continent, the festival in Roman times, you would throw beans to drive uh, ghosts away. So obviously all manner of, uh, of a notion that the beans are the, the, the barrier or the thing that exists between worlds. And so when you see that barrier begin to flood towards you on TikTok or wherever, well, that means something's opened somewhere. It's not that uh, the kids are, are opening it. The kids are just, you know, they're the froth on the wave, right? Right. And I think really on TikTok, what you got to look out for is um, makeup demonstrations because there's some people doing some pretty realistic skulls. And I think eventually one of them's going to stick. It's not going to be makeup anymore. No makeup, no makeup. And then we're all in trouble. And uh, when we're all in trouble, I think it's time for us to flee because I think we're about to be rescued by a certain conveyance. Mm-hmm. Delta Green Black Sites collects terrifying Delta Green operations previously published only in PDF or in standalone paperback modules. They lock bystanders and agents alike in unlit rooms with the cosmic terrors of the unnatural. By masters of top-secret mythos horror, Dennis Detweller, Adam Scott Glancy, Shane Ivy, and Caleb Stokes. In PX Poker Night, discontented Air Force members listen to the night sky and hear secrets not meant for human ears. In Kali Gotti, a Delta Green operative goes missing from a combat base in the Afghanistan war. The Last Equation, a gifted university student guns down a family of total strangers, leaving behind a string of numbers that fills Delta Green's researchers with dread. Lover in the Ice, a bitter Midwestern winter shuts down a city and awakens a threat that is all too ready to spread. Sweetness, vandalism of a family home, twigs Delta Green to mythos danger. Hourglass, a woman vanishes screaming in front of dozens of witnesses in a small Oregon town. Ex Oblivione, crazed words scrawled at a crime scene, hint at Yohannath Lai and the sea. The child, a traumatized child looks to the agents for protection from voices that never cease. Delta Green Black Sights is a full-color 208-page hardback. Grab it now before it grabs you. The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which, of course, is the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to send our hero back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes even mutilate it. And this time around, Ken... Uh, the time stream part you've already taken care of because in episode 492, you saved Lord Byron. So uh, I guess briefly before I go on to what the actual question is this time, you'll remind people of the circumstances of his 
death and how you prevented it. Lord Byron, in our history, got excited about volunteering for the Greek War of Independence, went to the, at that time, British-occupied island of Cephalonia, fitted out an expedition with cannons and ships and whatnot, and promptly got it lost sailing across the bay to Missolonghi, which was the Greek stronghold on the northern shore of the Gulf of Corinth. He, he, he got so lost that he winds up in Missolonghi waiting for his cannons to show up. And while he does so, he catches a bad infection from the swamps and dies there. And in uh, my version, he doesn't get lost, so he doesn't have to hang around the swamp waiting for his cannon, and instead goes off to nobly lead the Greeks in battle against the occupier, and also, perhaps more importantly, to personally oversee and guarantee the British bank loans that are being floated to pay for the Greek War of Independence. And since they're going through Byron's bankers and Byron is keeping an eye on it or has his man of business keeping an eye on it, so much less of it is embezzled uh, by the the British bankers or even by the the Greeks um, who get it because, again, Byron's in charge of paying it out. So And and nothing makes him brood romantically like the thought of financial malfeasance well that's that it does it does anger him and uh send him into a a white hot rage right but a a sexy white hot rage let me point that out right so that brings us to the actual question before us you've saved lord byron i have he's working his his financial levers helping the greeks so the question is what horror novel does byron who lives longer in this timeline go on to write and there's a second question, which we'll get to later. But tell us about his horror novel, his classic horror, work for horror fiction. I will, I will do that. What Byron does in order to drum up interest in the third City of London bank loan, and this he does in 1826, two years after his historic death, he goes back to the old scrap that he had jotted down in 1816 at the Villa Diodati session, at which time... Mary Shelley had gotten the impetus to write Frankenstein and John Polidori uh, to write the novel Lord Byron is a Jerk, but he published it under the title The Vampire. <laughs> it's snappier title. It, 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 I mean, but it's sold better under Lord Byron is a Jerk. So, you know, you give with one hand, you take with the other. Anyhow, he goes back to the well. He needs something to, you know, get people up and excited. He's written a bunch of poems about heroic fighting in Greece. They're doing okay, but at some point he's sort of, he's filled that market for a good long time over for the last two loans. So he thinks, well, let's try doing a novel. Novels are big. So he goes back to the, the fragmentary bit of a novel that he had written in 1816 and expands it into the novel Augustus Darvell. Augustus Darvell is the name of an elderly man who dies in Turkey in the novel. Originally in the fragment, it's in 1816. He moves it to 1821, the first year of the Greek War of Independence. Not a coincidence. He dies in uh, Western Turkey between Smyrna and Ephesus in the company of a young narrator. The narrator sees a mysterious stork arrive with a snake in its mouth, at which point Darvell suddenly dies. His skin turns black and he crumbles away to uh, goo. And the narrator says, well, that was unusual and weird. And I guess the story is over. I guess the story is over. So he goes back to England, and who does he find there battening on his girlfriend but Augustus Darvell back to youth as a vampire? And it is at this point that we have a confrontation, and Augustus Darvell says, oh, I'm a vampire. And he does a little flashback and talks about how he rose as a vampire in the early 1790s. 
coincidentally, when Byron was coming out into society and also a way to indict uh, the British population for ignoring uh, the, the, the revolutionary spirit of France. But uh, Darvel, Roses of Vampire in the early 1790s, and uh, ate all of his female relations, his daughter, his sister, his wife. You'll see echoes of that in uh, Byron's poem, The Jower, where he talks about a vampire having exactly that kind of response to his family. Uh, so the narrator flees in horror, goes back to Greece to find a way to stop Darvel. He meets a young, vigorous mountain bandit, possibly based on Byron's friend Marcos Botsaris, the head of the Suliotes of Epirus. But anyway, their fast friendship causes uh, him to tell him all about this vampire problem that he has. And he says, oh, we have a similar problem in Greece and we solve it uh, in this mysterious cave. And the cave is full of storks and they uh, go past that and they see a big snake in the cave. The snake bites our narrator. The bandit chief kills the snake, uh, drains out the poison. And then they decide to stay in Greece and fight the Turks. And uh, they hear later that Darvel died in England and a stork lit on his grave and flew off, implying that the vampire spirit was the snake that they killed, but not saying it in so many words. Because the point of the novel was not fun vampire. The point of the novel was let's all fight for Greece. And so it doesn't, it, you know, it, uh, it's one of those novels that people say, you know, oh, if you read the middle part, it's great. It's not a, uh, a fully rounded, um, uh, successful novel, but Byron's a poet. He's not a novelist. And, uh, he knew that. And, uh, right. it, it turns basically into sort of, you know, estimable war propaganda and, uh, less into a horror novel in the last chapters. Right. Uh, and so he's, he's banging out a pot boiler to, to raise some dough for his friends. Basically. Yeah. To make some money. And so presumably that is. The opinion that Mary Shelley, this is our second question, what did Mary Shelley think of Augustus Darvell? Well, um, here's the thing about Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley had great mad love for Byron, and not in the sexy way, although she probably also thought he was sexy, but she just loved him. She thought he was great. He was always very nice to her. He did her the amazing favor of distracting Claire Claremont from trying to hit on Percy Shelley, uh, which she very much needed. So she always uh, respected that wing manning that he performed for her. And they had a, a lovely relationship through uh, his entire life. They addressed each other in their infrequent correspondence in terms of, of utmost friendship. When Byron got a copy of Frankenstein, he said, uh, methinks it is a wonderful work. For a girl of 19, not even 19 indeed at that time, and uh, was nothing but uh, generous and kind to Mary Shelley. So he was a jerk to most everyone else in his life, but game recognized game, Byron and Mary got along. So Mary, of course, uh, generously said that Augustus Darvell was terrific. She introduced Byron as a character in her novels, uh, The Last Man and other works that she did. She sort of had disguised Byrons who were always heroic Byrons, not bad Byrons. And, uh, she again, uh, recognizes Byron in the narrator and, uh, talks about the, the touching portrayal, et cetera, et cetera. And she also knows that Augustus Darvell is meant to represent British reaction and her father brought her up good to hate British reaction. So she was in sympathy with its politics, even after she had to sort of trim her own sails to keep in good with the Shelley family. But she still had enough love and happiness with Byron that uh, she says nothing but nice things about Augustus Darvell. And it's, you know, it, it's understandable, her reaction. And indeed, the middle chapters are terrific. I don't want to take anything away from those middle chapters. Right. And so a book, though, where... The take is the middle chapters are good. It's mm -hmm. not something that displaces Dracula. 
no. your cultural consciousness. I mean, any more than, you know, Varney the Vampire did that. Right. Right. It has a, a, a vogue. It helps feed the vogue for vampires in the 1830s, especially in France. Um, so Nodier writes, you know, more vampire stuff in addition to his, uh, uh, plays, but you know, it's not going to, uh, outdo Dracula. Right. And so therefore there isn't a, uh, Knights Black Agents that's about Augustus Darvel, but rather he appears in the Dracula dossier as a subsidiary character and you, you write, you know, three, 400 words about him. Yeah. In the same way that Carmilla does and uh, Lord Riven and, you know, other great vampires of the 19th century. So really a, a footnote in alternate literary history. But still a novel by a Lord Byron about a vampire. So a cool footnote. Indeed, yes. Well, once we've uh, we've reached the cool footnote phase, I think we've uh, concluded yet another exciting episode and we can gather more ideas and concepts and weirdness and put four of them together next week in a format very much like this one. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Palgrain Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Stave off a romantic yet dire fate for this podcast by pitching in alongside such Byronic backers as... Luke Silburn. Matthew Preston. Tom Abella. Bill Sirwan. And Drew Clawry. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Unleash your inner alien big cat with our latest design, Screaming on the Moor. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff.